you want to be more productive? Maybe right now you have some long-deferred household projects you want to knock out. Or maybe even as I speak, you have a nagging urge to clear your inbox or pay a stack of bills or do a workout that you skipped yesterday. For understandable reasons, productivity tends to be a central concern in the workplace. There are metrics and benchmarks for productivity. You may have an annual review of your productivity or maybe every six months and there may be serious consequences that could be good or bad depending on how your productivity measures up. Both for personal and professional purposes, there's a whole productivity industry. For years, the standard was the best-selling book by David Allen, Getting Things Done. It had a good long run. But in the past few years, the new trend that seems to be taking over is bullet journaling. Any bullet journalers in our midst? Okay. If you want to be more productive, what is it that you want to do more of? What do you most want to produce? The impulse to be productive can become an unhealthy obsession, but the desire itself is a good one. It is right to feel pleasure in productivity. Productivity is a blessing and benefit to you. You embrace challenges that you enjoy. You tackle tasks that sharpen you. And you reap a harvest from long-term diligence. And productivity is a benefit to others. Whether it's in the workplace or in the home or even in relationships, there's a kind of productivity that, whether more or less directly, makes other people's lives better. If you're a Christian, what does it mean for you to live a productive Christian life? In other words, what is spiritual productivity? In 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter exhorts us to add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Then he says in verse 8, 2 Peter 1.8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word ineffective could easily be translated unproductive. So, as Christians, our faith should be productive. But what exactly should we produce? How can we produce it? And how do we keep this calling to be spiritually productive from swamping us with more stress and anxiety? We find Jesus' answers to all of these questions in our passage for this morning, John 15, verses 1 to 17. The passage starts on page 901 of the Pew Bibles. Please follow along as I read. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. In this passage, Jesus uses a grapevine as a metaphor for the Christian life. Verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Believers in Jesus are in him, joined to him, connected to him. And like the branches of a vine, we derive our life, our sustenance, our vitality from Him. The metaphor is based on the reality of our union with Christ. In an ongoing way, we receive our spiritual life from Him as completely as the branches depend on the vine. And in addition to basing this metaphor on our union with Him, Jesus develops the metaphor to urge us to have communion. With him. Fellowship, friendship, intimacy, dependence, all these are elements of our communion with Christ. Union with Christ is the foundation, and communion with Christ is built on that foundation. Here's another key point from the vine metaphor. Look back at verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so. Prove to be my disciples. How can you tell what kind of vine it is? By the fruit it bears. How can you tell 
who Jesus' disciples are by the fruit we bear. So how can you grow and flourish in Christ? How can you lead a productive Christian life? The same way vine branches bear grapes, by remaining vitally connected to the vine, by cultivating communion with Christ. So Jesus' answer to our question about productivity is really one word, communion, communion with him. The way to grow as a Christian is to remain in Christ, rely on Christ, know Christ, seek Christ, stay with Christ, hear Christ's words and pray those words back to the Father. Here's the point of our passage and therefore the point of this message in one sentence. Communion with Christ is rooted in His love, cultivated through dwelling in Him, and it bears fruit for our joy and the Father's glory. I'll say that again. Here's a one-sentence summary of the sermon. Communion with Christ is rooted in His love, cultivated through dwelling in Him, and it bears fruit for our joy and the Father's glory. Christ's love is the source of this communion. Our dwelling with Him is the means of communion. And our joy and God's glory are the goals of communion. Before we jump into the details of the passage, just a note on how we're going to work through it. In this passage, Jesus circles back over and over again to the same themes, but from a slightly different angle. So, just like we did with the middle part of John 14, I'm going to group together the main themes. Uh, It's going to be a little bit like an x-ray that tries to show the inner connections of the text. Fair warning, we'll be skipping around the passage quite a lot, much more than normal. Three points from our passage about communion with Christ, which is the key to a productive Christian life. Number one, roots of communion with Christ. Roots of communion with Christ. How do we become joined to Christ, united with Him in the first place, such that this kind of intimate and fruitful fellowship is even possible? Jesus answers that question kind of here and there throughout the passage. So to begin, turn to the end of the passage, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The initiative in this relationship rests entirely with Christ. Here Jesus is speaking specifically about his 11 apostles, his original disciples, that's 12 minus Judas who's already left. He chose them and appointed them to bear the fruit of founding the church. But this same choice applies to all believers. If you believe in Jesus, that's because Jesus chose you before you believed and enabled you to believe. What Jesus says here of his apostles, Paul says in Ephesians 1 and 2 of all believers, both the choice and the appointing to bear fruit. So, in Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in Ephesians 2, 10, Paul says... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
God chose us and appointed fruit for us to bear. The fact that God is the one who's chosen us in Christ is both humbling and assuring. It's humbling because it does not depend on anything good in you. If you want proof of that assertion, read Romans chapter 9. And God's election of us in Christ is assuring because our salvation is certain. It rests on His unchanging purpose. It doesn't finally depend on us. And if Christ is the one who has chosen us, then He will ensure that we will bear fruit and persevere to the end. Kind of moving on in a logical and theological order, after choosing us, what did Christ do? Look, at, look up at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's a one-word summary of Jesus' whole mission on earth. He came to love. And then verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Verse 9 tells us, that Jesus has loved us as fully, as perfectly, as devotedly, as the Father has loved Him. That statement should startle you and amaze you and fill you with comfort. And what's the greatest demonstration of this utterly mind-boggling love? It's that Christ gave Himself in love for us on the cross. He laid down His life in order to make us His friends. None of us have borne the fruit that God wants from us. The only right response to God's gift of life and the only right response to God's revelation of Himself and His creation is to give ourselves to Him wholeheartedly, to bear fruit for Him in loving obedience, in worship, in service. But every single person has rejected God's good authority. All of us have, therefore, earned God's judgment and wrath. All of us have made ourselves into His enemies rather than God's friends, but God is love. And He loved us by sending, us, sending His Son into the world for us. He loved us when we were unlovely. And Jesus, the only one who perfectly deserves God's love, has loved us with a love we don't deserve. In the greatest display of love in all of history, in the greatest display of love in all of history, He laid down His life for us in order to make us His friends. If you don't trust in Jesus, if, you're not, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I invite you, maybe defy you, to come up with a greater example of love than Jesus giving his life for his enemies. He loved us when we'd done nothing to deserve that love. He bore the punishment for our sin by his death, and he triumphed over death by rising again. This is the good news that Jesus came to make. This is the good news that's the heart of Christianity. If you haven't turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, embrace Him, rely on Him. Repent of sin and trust in Him to save you and to make you His friend. If you do that, you will be right with God. Not by anything you've done, but by everything that He's done. Look up at verse 3. Jesus tells us this. In verse 3, He says, 
already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There's a word play here that doesn't come out as naturally in English, but by the pruning that we're going to consider in verse 2, that's a kind of cleaning, a cleansing of the tree. Jesus says the disciples are going to need some pruning, but they're already clean. They're going to need cleaning, but they've already been cleansed. That's the posture and the structure of the Christian life. If you trust in Jesus, you're already clean. You have a right standing with God. You have intimate access to God because he's already cleansed you. The neat one-word summary for that is justification, having a right standing with God. But then you enter into this whole life that's a continual progress of growing more clean, growing more pure, growing more fruitful. You're already clean, that's justification. You need to be more clean, that's sanctification. The one is complete, the one is settled, the one gives us total confidence and assurance. And in the other, the more we grow in it, the more we delight in it. That is the Christian life in a nutshell. So then we're clean, but we're not kept at a distance. We're made Jesus's friends. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have known, all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. When you trust in Christ, you become Jesus' friend because just like he faithfully imparted to the disciples the whole message he had received from the Father, so he opens up to you the intimate mysteries of the mind of God, all that God has willed for us to know of him is revealed to you through Christ. Just like a friend opens their heart to you and trusts you and lets you in on things that they don't let everybody in on. That's what God has done for all of us who trust in Christ. When you put all of these verses together, we see that the roots of our communion with Christ are ultimately found in our union with Him. We can only bear fruit for Christ because He has chosen us and appointed us. We can only experience Christ's love in our lives as a daily reality because Christ loved us all the way to the cross. We can only come into God's presence and bring our requests to Him and know Him intimately because we've already been cleansed. We can only be friends of Christ because He extended the offer and He revealed the heart of God to us. This is how we get to be branches of the vine in the first place. We didn't plant ourselves. We didn't engraft ourselves. We did not produce spiritual life for ourselves. The life we have in Christ is a free gift from God and we've done nothing to earn or deserve it. Your life in Christ does not come from anything within you, but entirely from without. Our culture says that your biggest problems are outside you and the solutions are found within. The Bible teaches the opposite. Your biggest problems are within you and the solutions are from without. That is the key to the Christian life. And that is the key to finding peace and contentment in this world as we considered last week. If you're a Christian, take comfort in all that God has done for you in Christ. Find assurance in what He has already done for you. He's chosen you, purchased you, and planted you in Christ. If you struggle to know that you're saved, look outside yourself. 
Lift up your eyes and see where your help comes from. Your help comes from the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is all love toward you. The 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane reflected on this beautifully in a letter to someone who was kind of considering trusting in Christ and unsure, could they? Here here was some of his counsel to that person. He said, the four gospels are a narrative of the heart of Christ. They show his compassion to sinners and his glorious work in their stead. If you only knew that heart as it is, you would lay your weary head with John on his bosom. Do not take up your time so much with studying your own heart as with studying Christ's heart. For one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And if you want to grow in Christ, then keep looking at Him and keep leaning on Him. That brings us to our second point. Point two, cultivating communion with Christ. Cultivating communion with Christ. How can you live a productive, a fruitful Christian life? Cultivate communion with Christ. Pursue fellowship with Him. Seek intimacy with Him. Continually rely on Him. This is the main focus of the passage, so we're going to walk through much of it uh, somewhat in order and just highlight each time this theme comes up. So first of all, the first way this passage tells us to cultivate communion with Christ might be a little surprising. It's an implication of the first two verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine... And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We'll come back to fruitless branches in a minute. But for now, let's focus on pruning. Pruning is cutting off certain parts of a plant for the sake of that plant's health and growth. Pruning maintains the plant's health, it trains it to grow in the proper shape, and it improves the quality of the foliage and the stems and ultimately the fruit. Pruning looks like it hurts the plant, but it's for the plant's long-term health and growth. How does the Father prune us? Sometimes through the encouragement of a friend sometimes through direct conviction from His Word, often through strategically sending us suffering. The Bible has far more to say about suffering than the fact that God uses it to sanctify us, but it does say over and over again that God uses suffering to sanctify us. Suffering is one of the pruning shears that God keeps in His heavenly tool shed. And every cut he makes is an expression of love and wisdom and tender care. If plants could talk, I'm sure that many of them would cry out when they're being pruned. What are you doing? Can't you see I need that branch? How am I supposed to grow and bear fruit if you keep cutting all this stuff off? But the vine dresser knows what he's doing. The plant might not, 
our heavenly Father knows what He's doing when He sends us sorrow. So submit to His purposeful pruning, whatever form that takes in your life. In verses 4 to 9, Jesus tells us over and over again to abide in Him. That is, to remain in Him, to dwell in Him. How do you cultivate communion with Christ? It's by living in Christ. So verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verses 6 and 7 present us with a stark alternative. Either you will abide in Christ or you won't. At the end, the end, for those who don't abide in Christ, is a fearful and final condemnation. Who's Jesus talking about in verse 6? He's talking ultimately about people who profess faith in Him, about people who get baptized and join a church. He's talking about people who look for all the world like they're abiding in Christ, but then they don't. They stop. They fall away. Does the fact that Jesus refers to such branches in verse 2 as every branch in me, does that fact mean that you can be in Christ and then out of Christ? That you can be united to Christ and then lose that saving union? No, it doesn't. It just means that every metaphor has limits. The metaphor wouldn't work if the contrast was between these branches in the vine and these dead wood branches lying around from some other plant. The comparison just wouldn't work. It's only a metaphor. We've already seen, uh, both in this metaphor, the reality of union with Christ and His saving purpose, and we see elsewhere in John's Gospel that there is a kind of faith that doesn't prove genuine in the end. If you want to specifically see that in John's Gospel, one place you can look is John 2, verses 23 to 25. It says there are some people who believed in his name, but Jesus didn't trust that profession. So, the disciples have just seen an illustration of this reality of someone appearing to abide, but then not, in the person of Judas. They don't know what they've seen yet, but they've just seen Judas leave to betray Christ. He was one of them. He was with them for three years, and yet he's going to betray Jesus. You can give every appearance of being a fruitful branch, but not truly be in the vine. And if you don't persevere in abiding in Christ and bearing fruit for him, it proves that you weren't in him in the first place. 
But positively, in all these verses, Jesus calls us to cultivate fellowship with Him, to pursue intimacy with Him, to remain in Him and rest on Him. We've already seen that Jesus calls His disciples friends, and again, I think the reality of friendship helps shed light on what Jesus is talking about. To abide in Christ means to seek His presence like you seek the presence of your closest friends. In those deepest and richest relationships, you don't just spend time with a friend in order to do something else. Instead, you make it a priority simply to be with them. Being with them is more important than whatever it is you happen to be doing with them. The person is the point. You enjoy your friend. Jesus is saying that the secret of the Christian life is knowing him better loving Him more, seeking Him constantly, and relying on Him more fully. Jesus is saying that the key to bearing fruit as a Christian is not a productivity method, but daily reliance on Him. The way to grow taller in holiness is to grow deeper into Christ. The way to bear fruit is to always get more life from the vine. So in every effort you make to grow in Christ, In every personal or corporate spiritual discipline you pursue, seek Christ supremely. Means of grace are means of communion with Christ. So when you read the Bible or pray or gather with the church, seek Christ, aim at Christ, strive for Christ. Don't settle for anything less than more of Christ. If you're trying to overcome a sin... It will never be enough simply to deny that desire. You have to satisfy yourself with something better. You have to cultivate an appetite for something, ultimately someone, more satisfying. So cultivate communion with Christ and pray that he would be sweeter to you than the sin that you're trying to starve out. If you had just eaten a massive, delicious, completely filling meal, how would a candy bar look to you? It wouldn't even register. You wouldn't care. You would be completely full, completely satisfied. There'd be no room for the candy bar. So brothers and sisters, fill up on Christ. Don't leave room in your heart and affections for a hunger for sin. In verse 7, Jesus says, If my words abide in you, This reality of abiding can seem a little bit abstract. It can seem a little bit kind of foggy, ethereal, hard to get a handle on. Well, well here Jesus gives us a very concrete means of abiding in Him. His words abide in us. How can you know Jesus better? Know His words. How can you rely on Jesus more? Rely on His words. How can you find your very life in Jesus? Find it in His words. When Jesus asked the disciples if they were going to leave him, Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Look again at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not a little bit. Not a modest amount, not a small amount of fruit, but of respectable quality. Nothing, nothing 
Christ is our creator and sustainer, and Christ is the exclusive source of our life as Christians. Without him, we don't exist, and without him, we are spiritually dead, helpless, and hopeless. We can bear no spiritual fruit, do nothing that will please God apart from Christ. And the good news is that through Christ, we can. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of spiritual maturity. The more you know your weakness, the more you'll rely on Christ. The heavier your inability weighs on you, the quicker you'll run to Christ for help. The quicker you quit trying to live the Christian life in your own power, the more fruit you'll bear through relying on Him daily. And if you rely on Him, you will experience more and more of this spiritual power. That spiritual power might come in painful contrast to your own experience of your physical limits. Your physical capacities might be limited, might be weakened, might be dwindling through age, through illness. As Paul says, our outer man is wasting away, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. That life Christ promises you through abiding in Him is just as real and more real as the physical life whose weakness can cause us so much pain. There is a life that you have through connection to Christ that will not weaken or diminish no matter what your outward circumstances are. So lean on him for that life. We see another means of cultivating communion with Christ in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's a friendship here, a fellowship here, an exchange. Christ's words are in us and we ask the Father whatever we wish. There's giving and receiving. We come to him for what we need now. Since Christ's word is abiding in you, what you wish is going to be trained by that word. It's going to be corrected by that word. It's going to be tied to the stake of that word. But within that context, with Christ's words abiding in you, ask whatever you want. Make big, bold requests. In prayer, express your dependence on Christ, your need for Christ, and ask for fruit in your life and others that will glorify Christ. We'll come back to that theme of prayer and answered prayer later on. Jesus also exhorts us in verse 9, abide in my love. Abide in my love. I think his point is that while his love for us precedes our love for him, and his love for us does not ultimately depend on our love for him, ultimately, the way to experience that love is by staying in it. Jesus explains further in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Our experience of Christ's love, both in a day-to-day -day sense in this life and in an ultimate sense, in terms of our eternal destiny, is bound up with our obedience. There is no person who consistently disobeys Christ, who consistently doesn't heed His commandments, who consistently walks away from Him rather than walking with Him. There is no such person who will then ultimately experience Christ's love. 
And the more you walk in his commandments here and now, the more of that love you will experience, the more it'll characterize your day-to-day life. Let's say you're a parent of a teenage son. You give your son a curfew. Your son stays out past curfew an extra four hours, remaining inaccessible to you the whole time. If your son had kept to the curfew, he would have abided in your love. And he would have known that he was abiding in your love. As it is, when that son comes home, when you bring about an appropriate consequence, it will not feel very much to your son like he is abiding in your love. You still love him, but the way you express that love, it's not going to feel a whole lot like love in the moment. There is a daily lived experience of fellowship with God through his son, that our sin threatens. Our ultimate security is in Christ, his choice, his work, his holding us fast. And yet it is just as important to strive, to trust, to labor, to work, to seek him, to submit to him, both for our experience of that love and to prove that we really are in him in the first place. So Jesus tells us to keep his commandments. That's how we abide in his love. Okay, what are those commandments? Verse 12. This is the central one. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he says the same in verse 17. He loved us by laying down his life for us. He paid the ultimate cost so that we would freely obtain the ultimate reward. That's both the measure of and the motive for how we should love one another. Jesus says, love one another. Does that mean he's telling us not to love people who aren't Christians? Of course not. Elsewhere, Jesus says that the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And all throughout the Gospels, he exhorts us to love our enemies. Okay, why then does he single out loving one another as the sum and substance of his teaching for us? I think it's because Jesus saving love for us gives birth to a new community, a new family. We have extra motives for love. We have extra bonds of love. There is a special kind of love that should characterize us all together. And that Jesus says elsewhere in in chapter 13 of John that this is how other people will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. Christ has given himself for all of us and so we have new reasons to love one another. What does that love look like? church member told me just the other day at lunch that he likes nothing more than when some need is announced in the congregation to just be able to jump in and meet it. That's love. When someone's going through sorrow or hardship and you reach out to just find out, do do they have any needs? Is there any way you can help? That's love. When you pray for someone and let them know you prayed for them, that's love. When you give sacrificially and steadily to support the main work of this church, that's love because it helps us minister to each other and equip each other. When you lay down your own desires and preferences and agenda in order to pay more attention 
to what would serve someone else. That's love. How can you abide in that love? How can you grow in that love? Wonderfully, this congregation is characterized by that kind of love for one another. So lean into it all the more. Pray that you would love one another even more. What does it look like to abide in Christ? It looks like taking in His words through meditation, putting those words to work in intercessory prayer, and obeying His commandments, especially His commandment to love one another. Bear fruit by cultivating communion with Christ. And if you do cultivate communion with Christ, you will bear fruit. That's a promise. And it brings us to our third point. Fruits of communion with Christ. Fruits of communion with Christ. In most of these places where Jesus exhorts us to abide in Him, He makes promises to us about the fruit that this cultivated communion will bear. Three times, Jesus promises that those who abide in Him will bear abundant fruit, starting with verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes. Every branch. No branch escapes pruning. There's no branch outside this promise. Every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Several years ago when we lived in D.C. the first time, Kristen and I had a series of, you know, kind of back porch planter boxes. Uh, we mainly had some heirloom tomatoes, Cherokee purple, brandy wine. We planted them, we saw the shoots come up, we enjoyed that delicious kind of watery smell in the leaves of the potato plant. We put, you know, we put the stakes, we put a little fence around them, we saw this fruit slowly start to bud and blossom and grow, and you start to see the beautiful colors kind of streaking the tomatoes. And then right when they were on the cusp of getting ripe, maybe just a couple days shy of plucking them off and eating them, an evil squirrel whom we named Saruman, <laughs> came and took a small bite out of almost all of them. We would have had relatively abundant fruit, but there was no promise of it. We were thwarted in our efforts by this nasty little squirrel. So we had like a couple of small sad tomatoes in the end, you know, like half a plate of caprese out of all of that effort, right? <laughs> that was all. There was no promise of fruit, and in our modest and pretty pathetic gardening efforts, we bore very little. But Jesus is here making a promise of fruit. It's a promise. Whoever, everyone, every branch, and it's not just a promise of fruit, it's a promise of abundant fruit. It comes only if you abide in Christ. But if you abide in Christ, it will come. That fruit can take a hundred forms and have a thousand flavors, but all of it will bear the aroma of Christ. What comes out in the fruit of a plant reflects the nutrients. It embodies the characteristics of what it's taken in through the soil and the air and the sunlight. If you take in Christ, 
you will bear fruit that resembles Christ. If you have communion with Christ, then every sphere of your life will begin to look more and more like him. That fruit will be pervasive and consistent because your conformity to Christ will color everything you do. That's the link with that verse we looked at in the beginning from 2 Peter 1.8. He says, these qualities, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. He's saying that holiness in all of these areas is the key to a productive Christian life. It is holiness that makes us fruitful. It is holiness and conformity to Christ that enables us to bear fruit, whether it's in the workplace or at school or in the home, whether it's through suffering or opposition, whether it's through the trial of prosperity and success and having just wonderful outward circumstances. That's its own kind of trial. The more conformed you are to Christ, the more good fruit there will be in each one of those areas, each one of those circumstances. In verse 8, Jesus tells us two results of our bearing much fruit. The first is that the Father is glorified. He's glorified because His purposes come to pass, His power attains its goal, His love is extended, His character is displayed. The goal of bearing fruit as a Christian is not to polish it up and put it on a shelf so that you can enjoy it and take pride in it. The goal of bearing fruit as a Christian is to put God's glory on display because He is the one who gave the fruit. The second result of our fruit bearing in verse 8 is this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Andy Johnson, the resident agricultural authority on our pastoral staff, has informed me that there are some types of fig trees that even experts can't tell apart by any external characteristic of the tree. They can only tell what kind of fig tree it is once the figs come. You can only tell who a genuine Christian is when the fruit comes. In our whole passage, fruit is an infallible indicator of faith. I'll say that again because it's basically the theme of the passage just stated another way. Fruit is an infallible indicator of faith. Now, that doesn't mean that you will be able to infallibly assess your own fruit. It certainly doesn't mean you'll be able to infallibly assess other people's fruit. But if you have faith, you will bear fruit. So if you trust in Christ, but you struggle to see genuine fruit in your life, look to Christ. Continue relying on him. Rejoice that your fruit isn't what saves you. Jesus is. And as you seek to discern fruit in your life, study scripture together with other mature believers who know you well, who might see more fruit in you than you see in yourself. But again, these promises also go hand in hand with warnings. This is the flip side of fruit being an infallible indicator of faith. Again, remember verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. A branch that doesn't bear fruit isn't a branch. It's ultimately dead wood. Jesus' warning here is real, not hypothetical. And it is deliberate. His warning is meant to send through you a jolt of godly fear. It is meant to spur you on to a healthy and proper self-examination. So take an inventory of the kind of fruit you've been producing in the last six or 12 months. 
ask after where has there been good fruit and where has there been bad. Pray with David in Psalm 139, verse 24. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And there are still more fruits of communion with Christ for us to consider. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When Jesus says these things, he's talking about everything he's teaching them right now. You could walk through every single thing he says in the passage and fruitfully ask, how is this for my joy? Because it all is. I'll give you just a few samples. Election is for your joy because it teaches you that God's love comes before your love. Christ's loving sacrifice of himself is for your joy because his death secures your salvation. Friendship with Christ is for your joy because there is no better friend. Abiding in Christ is for your joy because the fuller your life is with Christ, the fuller your heart will be with happiness. Making bold requests of the Father is for your joy because you will see him answer. Bearing much fruit is for your joy because, as Robert Murray McShane said, there is no joy like that of holiness. <clears throat> Notice in verse 11, Jesus is not saying that you're a big failure and that you'll only ever be a big failure. So it's a good thing you can find security and joy in his choice of you because you will never be able to see anything in yourself that would confirm that choice and that would then become a source of joy as you perceive his work in you. It is true that we should find joy and security in Christ's choice of us. And we should find our ultimate security in his objective saving work for us. But here Jesus is promising joy that comes in the course of fruitful obedience. He's promising joy because he's promising fruit. The joy comes in the fruit. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. And one of those fruits will be joy. There's a delicate balance in the Christian life where we need to learn, we, we need to, learn to lean always first and foremost to be able to put all of our weight on Christ's work for us. That's outside of us. It's complete. It's perfect. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. But once we've done that, we're also required in Scripture to then put a proper secondary kind of weight on Christ's work in us, for us and in us. We always lean first on his work for us. And if we struggle with his work in us, we go back to his work for us. But part of maturing as a Christian is learning how both to bear the fruit in the first place and then actually to see that fruit and to have it bring encouragement, to have it bring confirmation. It's not a balanced Christian stance to only ever say, well, he, he, he's done the saving work for me, but I can't see any proof or fruit of it. That would be presumptuous. I'm still a wretched, miserable sinner. On one level, of course it's true we're still sinners. But Jesus is saying that there's joy that comes in obedience. There's confirmation. There's proof that comes in obedience. So part of your kind of rightly balanced spiritual perception of your own state and of others' state is learning how to properly put that right kind of weight down on the fruit you see. 
Uh, Greg Gilbert, who used to be a pastor here, is a pastor of Third Avenue in Louisville, has a great new book out on assurance called Assured. One of the great things he does in that book is he talks about mistakes we often make in assessing our own fruit. It's a very helpful guide to that difficult subject. It's like the, the second to last or last chapter in the book. There's one more promise Jesus makes. It's in verse 16. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Actually, two promises packed in here. There's a promise of fruit that will last. He's promising a fruit that no squirrel can ruin. He's promising a fruit that no economic downturn can erase. He's promising a fruit that no personal opposition can undo, that no trial can overcome. He's promising a fruit that will abide, and that is a fruit worth ultimately striving for. That's a fruit worth having a godly ambition for. And then there's this promise in verse 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We already saw a promise of answered prayer in verse 7. He repeats it in verse 16. If his words abide in us and we bear fruit for him, God will answer our prayers. Now, as we talked about a few weeks ago, of course, there are qualifications. We don't always know what to pray for. We don't always pray for the right things. Of course, not every word that comes out of our mouth in prayer gets an answer just like we would expect. But here's the thing. Jesus makes this promise in blank check, absolute, categorical terms. He does that for a reason, to get us to pray. It is more important for you not to understand this verse, but to do it. What matters most about Jesus' teaching in this passage is not that you can wrap your mind around it but that it comes out of your mouth in prayer. That's what he's calling to. It's what he's pushing us to. This is a promise that we need to lay hold of. So pray boldly, fervently, eagerly. Pray audaciously. Pray expecting God to answer because he promises to. Either you believe what Jesus is saying and you pray, or you don't believe what Jesus is saying and you don't pray. Come back tonight eager for James Choi to help us dig into this in his elder address on private prayer. How can you lead a productive Christian life? How can you bear abundant fruit that will last? Abide in Christ. Cultivate communion with Him. Look again at verse 9. Such a sweet verse. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus' love for us is a feast. He's saying, keep feasting on it. Jesus' love for us is an ocean full of blessing. Jesus' love for us is vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And he's saying, stay in that ocean. Stay in that love. Experience that love. Know it. Have it proved to you. Bear fruit for your joy and God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ's work for us is for our joy. And we thank you that Christ's work in us 
is for our joy. We pray that Christ's joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. We pray that you would cause us through fellowship with Christ to bear abundant fruit this week and every week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.